I'm Shelly Slender for MeAndMyDiabetes.com. A calcium heart scan is considered by many health experts to be the best way to measure heart disease risk. Calcium buildup in the arteries means that there's been some scabbing and damage. That's a bad sign all by itself, but those kinds of calcium-filled waxy plaques are prone to breaking off and causing blockages within the bloodstream that can lead to heart attacks and stroke. Recently, Sam got bad news about the levels of calcium in his arteries. In the last five years, the calcium score has increased six times over. Sam's doctors want to put him on a cholesterol-lowering drug, but the last time Sam tried them, they caused a lot of muscle pain. Sam's open to some other options. A decade ago, he took a nutrition class from Dr. Ron Rosedale, which improved all his health markers, including his cholesterol. He's considering going back to Ron Rosedale's low-carb, high-fat diet. Now let's listen in as Sam talks with Dr. Ron Rosedale. Sure, check one. Hi, Dr. Rosedale. It's good to talk with you again. Hey, nice to talk with you again, Sam, too. Well, I'll, I guess I'll just start in then, if that's okay with you, Ron. Sure, that's just fine. Well, you know, what precipitated this was I had a heart scan two, three weeks ago. This was a follow-up to a scan I had had four years prior. My doctor said, well, it's been four years, and he recommended another one. That scan showed significantly increased plaque buildup, calcification buildup. I don't know if you're familiar with the numerical scale they use. They had me late 2008 as a three on that scale. Mm -hmm. And I had gone now in uh, early 2013 to an 18. Mm -hmm. Still relatively low on what I think is a 100-point scale. So it's more. It's the number of pixels that basically light up. And I've seen numbers that are in the thousands. So on one hand, it's... A percentage, it's a six-fold increase, and that was the concern. You know, on the other hand, it's not that high. I'm 49 years old. You know, I exercise, mild exercise, most every day, and my diet is, my diet fluctuates. The, the, uh... Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Don't, don't skip over that. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I understand. Let's, uh, if you don't mind, just, uh, very briefly, we'll go into it more later, perhaps, but... When you say your diet fluctuates, can you elaborate a tiny bit more? Yeah, sure. I um, I I start. I tend to start my day with you know some almond butter or some cottage cheese or just some and some small portion of something like that to get myself a little pro. Actually, it's usually one of those two things. But then, as the rest of the day goes on, I might skip lunch. I might just have whatever uh, some kind of nutrition bar. Or I, you know, I might actually have a sandwich. When you say nutrition bar. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh -huh. I guess that... <laughs> is that. Is that just another term for candy bar? <laughs> well, some might say. I mean, it's not like a Snickers, but it's, you know, something that I might get at Whole Foods that's promoted as protein and nutrition, although it tastes pretty sweet. You know, it might be Odwalla. It might be another company, but it. It's probably somewhere between a full-on candy bar and something moderately healthy. Uh, I don't know, though. You know, vitamins in there. But it, they taste pretty sweet. So I might have one of those in the middle of the day. And then I'm very hungry when I get home at night and tend to overeat. Um, and I'll eat. I like to butter anything I can butter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I do. That's the time when I tend to eat 
refined carbs. That might be a bowl of cereal or a bagel, peanut butter or almond butter and jelly sandwich, um, those uh-huh. kinds of things. I know I don't eat as much fruits and vegetables as I should. I, I tend to be able to get a couple carrots in me every day uh, just because that's easy. Is that supposed to be good? Well, I I think carrots are <laughs> somewhere in the middle of good. Yeah. I know they're sweet, and that may be a problem, but, you know, I I, I think of them as being pretty good. Uh, anyway, that's... And, and um, I, I'm drinking a little every day, you know, um, not to excess, but I'll typically have a, a glass of red wine or two or a, a glass of whiskey or two. That's a typical kind of day for me. And has that been typical since you've had your last ultra-fast CAT scan? I think, yeah, I think that's that's pretty typical. I was better before that first scan. I don't know if you remember, but I did a pilot group with you several years ago that Shelly had set up. I lost a considerable amount of weight um, and tried to stick to the recommended diet and, you know, was pretty successful for a while, but gradually dropped away from that. Not for any particular reason I can think of other than it just fell away. Society. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been hard to stick to it. So yeah, I would say that the diet I just described has been more or less similar for the, the four years since the first scan. And if I can add one thing, it's that when Sam went to get his heart scan, he said that he is so afraid that his heart scan means he will have to give up butter. It is my favorite thing. Well, then let me, let me absolutely alleviate your fears. Okay. It's not butter that you have to fear. And you don't have to give up your beloved butter, actually. As we speak, on my kitchen counter right now, I have an open stick of butter on a plate that I periodically take a pat of and just stick it in my mouth just because I love butter. Not on anything else. Just I take maybe a half a teaspoon of butter and just eat it. That's great. And there's no problem with that. So, yeah, you see, so this isn't going to be as horrible as you think. Okay, good. But some of the other things that you're eating are extremely detrimental. And I will tell you why and how they are very, very relevant to your heart scan. And it's, I'm sure, quite different than what is normally being proposed and promoted to deal with increased arterial calcification. Well, I can tell you one thing before you comment on that. They did recommend statins. Of course they did. You stub your toe, they'll recommend statins. And I've resisted that. Good. Sam, you said that you actually had muscle pains when you took statins once I before. did. So my doctor, my primary care doctor, who I, who I really feel we have a good relationship and I, I appreciate the care, but that was one point where we disagreed and I did finally break down. He was recommending statins because my uh, bad cholesterol had gotten over 200 and stayed there. And, and so after resisting it for a few years, I finally did say, okay, I'll try it. And I was on a low dose of the one called Lipitor and I did have some muscle cramping. It seemed to go away or be less after a few days. Can I interject really quickly? Why are you calling it muscle cramping? It felt like a tightness. Maybe it's not an accurate description, but the mu- it felt like the muscles were sore in a way. That's correct. Muscles are sore, no doubt about it. And I'm sure they were achy, 
you wouldn't say it's necessarily a cramp. Have you ever had like a cramp in your calf before? Yeah, you're right. It wasn't like that. That would not be an accurate description. So I stopped. Uh, I just stopped taking them. And he said, well, okay, if you don't want to take them. The blood work that we took right after I stopped did show that that bad cholesterol number had dropped. And so I, I had kind of just said I'm not going to take them anymore until I did this other scan. And the people who did the scan recommended statins. They also talked about a water-soluble type of statin that they felt might be more appropriate or might not have the soreness that I had had from the Lipitor, which I presume is non-soluble, different kind. You're signed. I'm just dying inside hearing this story. It's just, you know, such... I don't know even how to describe it. There's no science to back up anything they say. In fact, the science will almost absolutely refute what they say. But the statin does lower the... Oh, yes, it lowers a number. Uh-huh, it does. Does it lower mortality rate? In other words, will it reduce your risk of dying? I don't know. It won't. In fact, it'll increase it. You said your muscles ached. You called it a cramp, right? Yep. Uh, did they tell you why? Did they tell you why statins do that? They may have, but I don't remember. They probably didn't. I will tell you. It's not, yeah, it's not a, it's a side effect. It's a, it's a secondary effect or it's a prime, actually it's a primary effect of statin drugs, not even a secondary, not even a side effect. It is the effect of statin drugs. Its primary effect is to reduce an enzyme called HMG coenzyme A reductase. That's what it does. They're known as HMG coenzyme A reductase inhibitors. When statins were first developed, that's what they were developed for. They were specifically developed in a laboratory to inhibit that enzyme. That is what they do. It's important to recognize that. Okay? They were not developed as antioxidants, for instance, or anything like that. They were specifically developed to inhibit HMG coenzyme A reductase. HMG coenzyme A reductase is a, an enzyme that manufactures cholesterol in the liver. It's one of the steps. And when you inhibit the enzyme, you reduce the manufacture of cholesterol in the liver. That same enzyme, as is very typical in biology, is not used for just one purpose, however. It's used for multiple purposes. One of the other purposes of HMG coenzyme A reductase is to manufacture something called coenzyme Q10. Coenzyme Q10 is involved in the so-called mitochondrial respiratory chain. It is very critical in transferring energy from food into the usable little batteries that all of life uses called ATP. When you diminish coenzyme Q10, you diminish your ability to produce energy. That's really, really important because without energy, you have no life. The reason you were developing muscle cramps is because your muscles use energy, what you called cramps. It was really aching. That's because whenever you use a muscle, it has to rebuild itself. And it can't rebuild itself fast enough if it doesn't have enough energy to do so. It's interesting that they don't connect the fact that your heart is a muscle. And you were not, unbeknownst to you, 
just having a problem with your skeletal muscles, but you were having a problem with your heart too when you took statin drugs. It wasn't able to pump as hard. It wasn't able to constrict as hard. In other words, it was weaker because you took statin drugs than if you didn't. The purpose of your heart is to pump blood. Under the misguided, if you want to call it that, now actually being polite in saying that, attempt to reduce risk of future coronary heart disease, they give you heart disease. It is an effect of statin drugs to reduce energy production, especially in those tissues. In other words, the, the tissues that use a lot of energy are the ones that will be most adversely affected by the inability to produce enough energy. And the heart is one of the major tissues, heart muscle. The heart is one of the major organs that requires lots of energy. It is adversely affected. Not only that, because perhaps, and of course this is somewhat speculation, but it is known that when you reduce cholesterol, when you have lower cholesterol, you increase risk of death. Not necessarily cardiovascular death. And that's the kicker. So what they try and tell you is that taking cholesterol-lowering medications reduces risk of cardiovascular disease. And that may or may not be true. There's a lot of twisting of data to come up with that. But what they fail to tell you is, despite perhaps reducing cardiovascular deaths, it increases total mortality. In other words, perhaps you won't die of heart disease, but you'll die more of something else. Is there research? There's been research since the 1970s that have shown that. Over and over and over and over and over again. It's not news. But I, I mean, I'm just, as a layperson, thinking, well, the mortality rate has been linked to the statin use, but they've been able to isolate other risk factors and, and say that statins increases your chance of dying of something? Well, most of the data is not on statins particularly because the people who are doing research on statins are the drug companies. You're not going to find an independent person spending upwards of $50 million or $100 million to do a big study on a statin drug to show a negative effect. That's a major problem in medicine. You don't spend money to show a negative effect. You spend money to make money. Pharmaceutical companies will spend a lot of money to do a study not to find some ultimate truth or to better your health or even care about your health, but to look after their financial interests and the financial interests of their stockholders, of which they are beholden. Ron Rosedale, if I can interject, I think that if a drug company person was listening right now, you might be hurting their feelings. Oh, good. I hope so. In fact, if I could hurt it even more, I would. It's really unfortunate, but a lot of data can be done without having to spend $50 million or $100 million that show if you just check cholesterol levels, a lower cholesterol level below somewhere in the neighborhood of 250, your risk of dying accelerate. And in fact, your risk of dying with low cholesterol is considerably more than your risk of dying with cholesterols above 250. In other words, it's kind of a, a U-shape. And that's been known a long time. And that the lowest risk of mortality is with a total cholesterol of roughly 250 or something like that. That was shown in the seven country study in Europe and there's been so many studies that have shown that. But it's not something that, of course, a drug rep is going to go into a doctor's office and be paid by a drug company to tell doctors this. But doctors aren't stupid, right? They're going to be 
I mean, no. my doctor is not stupid, and he cares about me. I'm sure he cares about you. And yes, I'm not sure if he's stupid or not. I don't know him. They're certainly no smarter than the average population, but they're very gullible. And that I know. Has he read the underlying research? Probably not. Ask him why not. Does he know what HMG coenzyme A reductase does? Does he know its correlation with CoQ10? Does he know that statin drugs reduce ejection fraction of the heart? I don't know what that is. Well, the ejection fraction is a measure of how strong your heart beats, how much blood it pumps out. So the actual ejection fraction is a percentage of the blood that goes out with each beat versus the blood that goes in to the heart. If your heart were 100% with each beat, it would pump every drop of blood out that came in. That doesn't happen. Nobody's got that. So if you're a good athlete at rest, your ejection fraction might be 75%. And is that something that's measured? Yes, can be measured absolutely. And I've done it on my patients, and I've just by taking people off of cholesterol-lowering drugs, I've saved numerous surgeries because they look at ejection fractions and say, oh, that's not so good. I've saved people from heart transplants because they had ejection fractions really low. Whoa, lo and behold, you take them off of statin drugs, and their ejection fraction goes up at least 10 points. Are you one of the few doctors that measures that? No, that's something that's measured quite consistently by cardiologists. And it's a simple measure. You can get a good measure of ejection fraction just by doing an echocardiogram, you know, where you bounce sound waves. Echocardiogram is a nice, non-invasive test. Yeah, I think I had that done. They made me go on a treadmill, and they had the sensors on my chest. They were monitoring that. That's some years ago I had one of those. Well, that was just a stress test. That was not an echo stress test. Yeah, I don't really remember. Yeah, monitors on your chest. That was just a typical stress test where they do an EKG. That will not measure ejection fraction. However, they could have measured an ejection fraction. And you can do a stress echo that will measure ejection fraction. Anyway, it, it is not hard to measure, and it's been measured for a long time. And it is known that the statin drugs will impair ejection fraction, probably through its inhibition of the manufacture of CoQ10. Can I ask you about the other kind of statin? This place that did the scan said, well, you know, there's these water-soluble statins that might not lead to the muscle soreness you had with the Lipitor version. Is that any better or is that any different? It's no better. I haven't really looked into the research as to why they feel it would reduce pain or if it would even uh, reduce the inhibition, for instance, of CoQ10 manufacture. I mean, it'll still do the same thing, whether it be water-soluble or fat-soluble. If it's a statin drug, it will inhibit coenzyme A, uh, or it'll inhibit uh, HMG coenzyme A reductase. But no, to tell you the truth, I'm, I'm not an expert on the, on the water-soluble that they have just come out with. It, it wouldn't really matter to me, cholesterol-lowering drugs, with the exception of extreme cases in which cholesterol levels might be in the six, seven hundreds, um, should not be used, period, in anybody. Fat is not your enemy, and fat does not cause heart disease. Statin drugs will not do anything to reverse vascular calcifications. And I was involved in some of the early studies on using statin drugs for arterial calcification, and they don't work. 
So why they were even recommended to try and reduce your vascular calcifications is beyond me. There's no science to even indicate that cholesterol is involved in that. However, there's lots of science to show that other hormones are very much involved that do involve your diet. And the problem is there are no drugs to control it. Namely, that's leptin. It's now been known since at least 2002 and perhaps earlier that leptin is very, very much not only involved in arterial calcification, but perhaps even might control it. But there's no drugs to control leptin. And if there's no drugs to control something, in other words, if there's no money to be made, they do not care about it. People can be dying, they won't care if there's no money to be made. So leptin is, um, what is that, another enzyme? Or what is it? I don't know what a leptin is. Oh, no. You, you forgot from our group. I did. It's been a long time, and, and I, I, I'm sorry I was a bad student. But, it, you know, Ron, I have to say it really did help me, particularly at the time. I lost a lot of weight, and I've kept most of it off. And it did improve my diet, even though I backslid. So I don't want you to think I was a complete goof-off. No, <laughs> no, I don't think that at all. I was just having fun with you. But I forgot what leptin is. The, the whole diet was based on actually controlling and lowering leptin levels. Leptin, you're encouraging foods that have more leptin? No, no, no. Leptin is a hormone akin to insulin that is regulated in large part by what you eat. It is produced by fat, although it can be produced by other tissues also, not the least of which is the endothelium, macrophages and some cells of the immune system. Leptin is the major way that your body speaks to the brain to tell your brain how much energy is available and what to do with it. Now, that's a kind of a very brief summation of what leptin does, but that's extremely critical. And it does so via signaling the hypothalamus. Leptin essentially controls virtually all aspects of the hypothalamus in your brain. The hypothalamus is a switchboard, a very, very ancient, perhaps the most ancient part of your brain that takes in information from many sources from the nervous system, from lots of different hormones, and then regulates all of the processes that are critical to life. It sends out then other hormones and nerve impulses to control the thyroid and the ovaries and the pituitary and the adrenal gland. Leptin controls reproduction. In this case, we'll concentrate on leptin's role in cardiovascular physiology. Leptin, through the hypothalamus, we know, helps control the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is, is very relevant in that it helps dictate the constriction or dilation of arteries. In other words, arteries are not just static. This mental picture that medicine paints to delude people into thinking that your arteries are like copper pipes in the kitchen and if you eat fat, they will plug up and you'll die of a heart attack could not be further from the truth. It doesn't occur that way. Your arteries can dilate and they can constrict. And the dilatation and constriction largely determines your circulation over and above if you have blockages or not. And the dilatation and constriction is determined by certain hormones, but also very much by the sympathetic nervous system that is controlled through the hypothalamus by other hormones, not the least of which, again, is leptin. Leptin also controls the immune system via influence on macrophages and white blood cells. Leptin itself is a hormone, the type of hormone called a cytokine, which is very pro-inflammatory. We know when leptin goes up, 
your system is very much in a pro-inflammatory state. And we know that cardiovascular disease is a disease of inflammation, where the lining becomes inflamed, and therefore, essentially, it swells, and you get plaque as a result of that inflammation. Inflammation is there to help heal, but if it's overdone, it can cause death also. In other words, you can look at inflammation. If you cut your hand, it will swell, and there are signals that will be sent out from having cut your hand that will cause blood vessels to constrict so you don't bleed to death cause white blood cells to come into the area to clean up debris and to guard against invasion by microorganisms that will give you infection. It causes cells that line the, the cut to grow and to multiply so that you can heal. And ultimately, that cut will heal and you think nothing of it. But if that process initiated by inflammation hadn't occurred, you would have died from a small cut to your hand. How can I know if I've got, like, the right level of leptin? You can measure it. You can measure just as easily as you can measure cholesterol and about just as cheaply. Really? So when they go, when I'm yeah, sent... Yeah. Have you, have you had your leptin level measured? Uh, I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. And that, to me, is an absolute sin and really should be malpractice because leptin is why you've got cardiovascular calcification and they don't even measure it. Why? Because there are no drugs to control it. It's been known for 10 years now, and, and there's probably hundreds of articles that show the control of leptin on, on cardiovascular calcification. If you take the lining of your artery, the endothelium, and you expose it, even just expose it to leptin, it will calcify, if you overexpose it, I should say. There are cells that line your arteries that are, I wouldn't even say relatives, virtually brothers of bone cells. There are osteoblasts. They're basically osteoblastic progenitor cells. That's the stuff that builds bones. Osteoblasts build bones. And so you're saying there's the same kind of thing in our arteries that's kind of related to that. Right. And they're in a kind of a precursor state. They're not bone, but they can turn into bone. There's in some of our ancient evolution somehow and, and, and development, the same progenitor cells that make bone also make arteries. I mean, next time I go to my doctor and he gives me the sheet to take to the lab in the other part of the building and he ticks off the different things that the lab is supposed to look for, could he just be ticking off leptin as, as well? Or, uh... Yes, he could. Now it's a, a laboratory test that's being done by every major lab in the world, but it's not being tested. It's not being tested because there are no drugs to control it. And I guarantee that if there were, they would recommend... Leptin-reducing drugs for everybody. How do you recommend I control it? I know we're getting back to diet, I assume. It is the only way. So, Ron, before you get into that, when we were at the calcium scan place and they were explaining what things make a difference, the data that they have says that diet and exercise make almost no difference, that the only lifestyle that makes a difference is whether or not you feel stress. And so forget about worrying about your diet. Forget about exercising and just work on stress. That's true. They did say that. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, when you talk about stress, what are, what are they really talking about? You're talking about cortisol. One of the biggest stresses to the body is when glucose levels go up. When glucose levels go up, it essentially mimics the fight or flight response. When you get scared in our evolutionary history and, and all of a sudden you're attacked by a lion or a bear or a saber-toothed tiger, 
you're going to do things that previously perhaps were superhuman. Your body gets prepared almost immediately for either fighting or flighting, i.e. running. And you run fast. And that's because your body goes through a number of different mechanisms that will help you be successful in those two endeavors. Okay, and you're... Yeah. One of which is to constrict certain blood vessels and then dilate others. It does this through the sympathetic nervous system. So you have adrenaline that gets pumped into your system. Again, through the sympathetic nervous system that is controlled by the hypothalamus, that is controlled by leptin. And one of the events that occurs in this fight-or-flight response is to increase glucose in the blood. And the reason for that is because you can burn glucose without oxygen. It's a so-called anaerobic fuel, or it can be an anaerobic fuel. And that's really the major reason we have glucose at all, is a reserve fuel supply in anaerobic emergencies, when you cannot breathe fast enough, in other words, under very stressful, high exertion activities, where you cannot breathe fast enough to supply enough oxygen to burn fat, because burning fat requires oxygen, burning sugar does not. Okay, I thought that was adrenaline that helped with that. It is. Well, I thought like when I, you know, to get that extra burst of energy in a fight or flight situation, it's adrenaline that starts pumping. I mentioned adrenaline. The adrenaline is put out by the sympathetic nervous system. Right, okay, but the glucose is... originates from hypothalamus. And one of the events then that occurs when when adrenaline and other hormones are pumped out and the nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system is stimulated like this, is glucose. And a high glucose then is put there for an emergency fuel supply because it can be burned without your having to breathe beyond your capacity in supplying oxygen. You can burn, you can get energy from glucose, even though you're not able to breathe fast enough to be able to burn fat. Glucose is like having stress. That's exactly right. When you have high levels of glucose in the blood, we also know that the sympathetic nervous system is stimulated, both through insulin and through leptin. Basically, it's kind of a reverse process. It's a sign to your body that you've got stress around. When you have high levels of glucose, we know that it causes stimulation of the cells in the pancreas to put out insulin. What's less appreciated is that there is also a stimulus to put up higher levels of leptin. Both of these things cause an increase in the sympathetic nervous system response, which is the stress response that causes vasoconstriction It constricts blood vessels, especially in muscles and skin, so that if you cut yourself during the fight, you're not going to bleed to death as much. It causes chemicals to be released into the blood so that it will clot faster. Well, that's great if you're fighting a a saber-toothed tiger to have vasoconstriction and your blood clotting more. Not so great if you're trying to prevent heart attacks. So I could do all manner of things like yoga, meditation, exercise to reduce stress. But if I have a diet that has a lot of sugars, that's going to be just as bad or worse? That's correct. It's good. And as far as you're concerned, as far as your vascular physiology and as far as calcification, and we could talk for weeks, maybe months, on the cardiovascular physiology of insulin and leptin. But let's just talk about the calcification. 
Cholesterol-lowering drugs have never had anything to do with calcification. Cholesterol has very little to do with calcification. It actually has very little to do with the causation of coronary artery disease, even, or plaque formation. It's a correlation that they twist around into a cause. Yes, cholesterol is correlated with heart disease. It's correlated with atherosclerosis. They've never been able to show a causation. In no science, you'll never see this in physics, will they confuse so often correlation with cause. But they leave that up to their publicity department to spin a study that shows a correlation between cholesterol and cardiovascular disease into a causation. In other words, a study will show that there's a, even a, a, a weak correlation between a cholesterol particle and cardiovascular disease. And then they'll tell their PR department to publicize this. And they'll publicize it saying, well, there was a 2% reduction in second heart attacks in people who took statin-lowering drugs. If you translated this to the world's population, we would save 100,000 people yearly. One does not follow the other. Correlation does not imply cause. Firemen are correlated with house fires. Rarely is it the firemen that cause it. Occasionally? Yeah, maybe. But I would certainly not want to kill the firemen as a means to put out the fire. And that's what they're doing with cholesterol. Did your doctor, who I'm sure means well, have him sit down and just put on his thinking cap for a little while. Why is the liver making cholesterol? They talk about good and bad cholesterol. Have him think about that for a little while. What is good and bad cholesterol? And is there such a thing? The answer will be no, there is no such thing as good and bad cholesterol. Cholesterol is a single molecule. You look at HDL and LDL, which is called good and bad cholesterol. What does it even stand for? What does LDL stand for that they call bad cholesterol? This low-density lipoprotein. It's not cholesterol. LDL is not cholesterol. It's a protein. It's a protein that shuttles cholesterol because cholesterol is a fatty molecule, kind of a waxy, fatty substance. It's not going to dissolve in the watery environment of the blood. It has to be then attached to a protein to make it water-soluble so it can be transported. Why is your body going to such pains to first make sure that it manufactures cholesterol in the liver, create proteins to transport it so that it can give you cardiovascular disease and kill you? Evolution doesn't work that way. Why did it evolve in the first place? Okay, I will tell you, at least briefly, because it has lots and lots of purposes. And one of the main purposes is that you can't have life without it. It's one of the few substances we know that is required by every cellular life. You can't make a cell without cholesterol. Far from being the Darth Vader of health, the pharmaceutical industry has been very successful in perpetuating that myth. It's one of your primary saviors. You could not live without cholesterol. A bacteria couldn't live without it. Nothing can live without cholesterol. Your liver makes it because you are constantly killing cells. So can I be eating that stuff that's supposed to be full of quote-unquote bad cholesterol, like eggs? Please. Well, I mean, I... That's a good... Let's look at eggs. I like eggs, by the way. Great. Let's look at an egg. What is an egg? Uh, well, it's uh, two portions, right? The yolk and the white, and it comes from some kind of fowl. I mean, let's go more basically than that. Not what the composition of an egg is. What is an egg? An egg is the beginning of all animal life. It's where animal life comes from, right? Yes. 
has that egg evolved into what it is today? I imagine so. Well, it had to. And it's delicious. Evolution has evolved in an egg. All of those nutrients that will allow that egg to most successfully turn into life and give that life a good running start to be successful and make it in this world. Yeah. The nutrients in an egg were hand-picked by evolution to be those that are most vital to life. Not death, but most vital to life. That's how evolution works. So that sounds like an egg is a really uh, nutritious food then. Yes. Yes. You are not smarter than 99% of the medical population. An egg is a really nutritious food. It is perhaps the most nutritious food that there is. It has gotten the gold star from evolution. And, and, and to be the most nutritious food that life can have to initiate life and sustain life in its early stages. And what food has the most cholesterol? An egg. Yeah. What does that tell you? Well, I, I'm having a disconnect between what we're talking about and the recommendation to, you know, strictly limit your egg consumption. Okay, so let's, let's say who to believe. Despite all this great medical advice that we've had, where are we headed as far as cardiovascular disease, cancer, mortality, the rate of aging? Despite this country spending 10 times more on medical care than any other country, where do we rank as far as health? I think we're somewhere in the middle of the pack for developed nations. Yeah, somewhere in the middle of the pack. I think we're 38th or something. Uh, pretty low then. Yeah. Despite spending 10 times more than everybody. So it's telling you one of two things. We're not getting a whole lot of bang for a buck. Or it could be telling you something else. That we are getting bang for a buck. It's going in the wrong direction. In other words, it could be that the medical care is not just not doing enough in this country. It could be that it is doing something that is killing people. You know, Ron Rosedale, when we had a conversation with some doctors here in the Boulder area, one was a cardiologist who actually is very open to higher fat, lower carb diets, and paleo kinds of diets. He said that they are actually very beneficial for some people, and he observed that the kinds of medications that he can offer people are there waiting for if they don't want to change their lifestyle, and most people don't. But it was, it was interesting talking with him and with the other local doctors because one of the things that they were debating was things like saturated fat versus vegetable oils. And Sam has had some questions about that. If he's having a bagel, should he put butter on the bagel or should he put a spread that's a vegetable oil spread that doesn't have so much saturated fat on it? I think he's going to say, don't eat the bagel. That's exactly what I'm going to say. <laughs> okay. So I've learned a little bit. The bagel will adversely affect the physiology of the fats. So when you eat the bagel, it'll turn into sugar. We just call it a bagel. Our cells will see it as sugar. You know, when we put it in our mouth, all we're going to do is chop it into smaller pieces. And then when we digest it, we're going to uh, chop it into even smaller molecular pieces. And all your cell ends up seeing is glucose for the most part. Now, the glucose is also going to very much raise insulin. It's also going to raise leptin. Ultimately, that will cause leptin and insulin resistance. But more immediately, it will prevent you from burning fat. And so 
uh, when you eat that bagel and you cause a big rise in glucose, which will glycate and cause all sorts of molecular damage, it'll cause DNA damage, it'll cause all sorts of, of, of nasty things just from the glucose itself. But the fact that it raised insulin then is a signal to your body then to, to burn the sugar and not the fat, essentially. You can't burn fat when insulin is high. So when you put the butter and the bagel together, it's quite different than if you were to eat the butter or the bagel separately. What happens then is that you will essentially you know, digest the bagel and the glucose. You'll end up going into glucose mode, glucose burning mode. You'll burn the glucose for energy, which, as a story for another day, will cause more damage than if you burn fat. And then you will store the fat. People get fat not because they eat the fat, but because they can't burn the fat. It's a one-way valve. And what causes that one-way valve is... Initially, elevations in insulin and later in disruptions in insulin and leptin signaling so that your brain then doesn't even know how much fat you've got. And the default is to store fat. So you could be you know, 200 pounds overweight. You could have all sorts of extra fat. It would be very detrimental to your life. But ultimately what happens is that there's a dysregulation in the signals that tell your brain that you've got this much fat and your brain doesn't have any idea and it thinks you're going to be too skinny to survive a famine and so it's going to just continue to uh, have you be hungry, eat more and store more fat until it finally gets a signal from leptin that you've got too much fat and you better burn some off or you're going to be in trouble. In regards then to the question then which fat to eat if you had to eat one or the other which was kind of the second half of uh, your question, the saturated fats are among the least problematic, actually, because they don't oxidize as much. So you hear of antioxidants, people take antioxidants, and oxidation is a player. It's far less important than it's given credit for as far as causing aging and age-related disease and that sort of thing. And we need oxidation. Breathing is oxidation. So it's not whether you have oxidation or whether you don't have oxidation. Like everything else, it needs to be orchestrated. Where, when, and how it's used is what will determine health and life and death. But the saturated fats don't oxidize as much. And that's good and bad. Uh, it's good in that it causes less lipid peroxidation. It causes less damage in cell membranes. It's not so good in that it's a little bit harder to burn because it doesn't oxidize as readily. However, you can change that by going into a physiology of burning fat more continuously. And then your body gets good at burning fat. And then it burns saturated fat. And then the type of fat you eat becomes less relevant because you're just going to burn it. All that being said, if you're not really good at burning fat, eating omega-6 fatty acids is going to be more detrimental to your health by far than eating saturated fats. And as far as causing cardiovascular disease and other diseases of aging itself, the omega-6 fatty acids are far more detrimental. So this conversion of, let's say, full-fat butter into the polyunsaturated margarines that we've been told to do since the 1950s has very much adversely affected our health and new you know, data now, basically just showing data from long ago is finally coming around to show that. In other words, almost every health recommendation given for long-term health, take calcium for strong bones, eat a low-fat diet, take statins to lower cholesterol, that cholesterol is the prime cause of heart disease, all of these things couldn't be further from the truth. And in fact, they're opposite the truth. 
you would do far better just to run the other way. So when you're being told to take a statin drug to lower cholesterol, to lower cardiovascular uh, risk, and to lower calcification in your arteries, that is scientifically nonsensical, number one. And number two, will actually promote the diseases that they're espousing it'll reduce. It isn't cholesterol that causes calcification at all. It is leptin at the very least. If you put endothelial cells in a petri dish and expose them to leptin, they will build bone. We know the connection between leptin and bone that was published in the journal Science. For those not in the know, the journal Science is one of the most respected scientific journals in the world. In journal Science, there were several articles in 2002, I believe, that showed a very powerful connection between leptin osteoblastic activity and osteoporosis and building bone, which surprised everybody. They didn't know why, but it really showed the connection between leptin and the sympathetic nervous system, actually, which goes to bone to stimulate osteoblastic activity. Just a very quick rundown. Bone has both bone building cells called osteoblasts that Shelley had mentioned, and it has osteoclastic activity. And that's very interesting. Osteoclastic cells are those cells that actually tear down bone on purpose because it wants you to remodel bone. All bones end up with little tiny cracks and fractures because they undergo damage, just like all of us do on a day-to-day basis. And that damage has to constantly be repaired. Life is a constant battle between damage and repair of damage. If we could repair damage as fast as it occurred, we would live forever. Our bones know this. Nature knows this, and so it was very wise to give us osteoclasts to break down and remodel old bone so that we can make newer, healthier, remodeled bone. And the reason I bring this up is because all of the therapies thus far for osteoporosis inhibit osteoclastic activity. So it increases bone mass but not bone quality. In fact, it reduces bone quality because you need the osteoclasts to be able to get rid of the old bone so you can put newer, fresher, stronger bone. What you'll see, again, with osteoporosis therapy today is treating a number. If you undergo tests to measure osteoporosis, bone scans, you'll see, yes, It improved, and if you fracture a bone, and you're just as likely to, your bone will shatter like glass if you've been on therapies for osteoporosis today. You can ask any radiologist, because they have not been able to remodel, they have not been able to build more protein in the matrix, which allows that bone to be more flexible, which is what really confers the strength. It isn't a number we're treating, and I I mention this again because this is what your doctors are treating when they're talking about LDL cholesterol. Even when they're talking about diabetes, they're treating a number of glucose, and diabetes is not even a disease of glucose. It's a disease of hormonal signaling that's telling glucose what to do. In other words, if you lower glucose by raising insulin, you are substituting one evil for an even worse evil. And that was shown by the ACCORD study, where everybody's still scratching their heads. And that's a study that showed that the more doctors controlled their patients' blood sugars, the better their blood sugars were controlled, the very significantly increased risk of death. That is a lot of information to think about, and I'm grateful for your time. We only have the studio for about another five minutes, but I wanted to be sure to ask you the other part of my diet that I've always been concerned about is my tendency to eat late at night. So how late at night can I eat that 
peanut butter and jelly sandwich or I mean I probably shouldn't even be eating that. Okay, well let's look at that. Say the sandwich itself you're talking bread that turns into sugar. The peanut butter has aflatoxins which will cause cancer and the jelly of course has fructose and other sugars which have all sorts of adverse effects. So it wouldn't be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich I would eat. Okay, so no time of day or night should I be eating that. But let's say I'm eating something, you know, like an egg or something recommended. Should I be eating that late at night? You can, actually, but it certainly should not be your biggest meal. And the reason for this is because your digestive system is a big part of you, and it needs to sleep, too. And you will not sleep completely if you're having to digest food, and it'll take hours and hours, you know, five hours or so, really, to digest food. So I tell people to not eat for at least three hours prior to bedtime. And you definitely should not eat your biggest meal at the end of the day. Your biggest meal probably should be in the middle of the day if you were to eat a big meal at all. And there's really no reason to. Ideally, we would just kind of snack whenever we were hungry, although you have to snack on the right foods, not cookies, and just don't eat if you're not hungry. Having a society where the family gets together for dinner, because that's when everybody gets home from work, is a hard thing to circumvent, but it's certainly one of the problems with the high prevalence of disease that we've got. Ron Rosedale, do you like to have a walk with your loved ones? Sure. And that would, and that's also a great point. What I mentioned is it's a really great idea that after your last meal of the day to take a walk. It doesn't have to be any more than that. Take a nice walk. Enjoy the flowers. Enjoy the weather. Enjoy the rain, which is what I did last night, actually, here in Seattle. Because it doesn't matter what you eat, for the most part. Almost all foods will have some sugar. If you ate just a salad with vinegar and olive oil and no sugar on it, supposedly, you're still going to be eating sugar. Broccoli, vegetables have some sugar too. And the idea then is to try and burn off that sugar before it does damage and keep your insulin levels and leptin levels low so that then when you put your head on your pillow, your digestive system, number one, can rest. And number two, you can recover the damage done to the signaling, to the insulin and leptin signaling so that it can get its message across to the brain properly to tell your brain how much fat you have so that you can burn off whatever you have that is extra and dangerous. Your body knows how to fix yourself. It has all the signals necessary. All we have to do is give it the opportunity to get those messages heard, and then it can orchestrate using other hormones what's necessary for you to be healthiest. I do want to mention, though, that it's been shown since, I think, the 1970s, or maybe earlier, if you infuse insulin into the artery of a dog it was first done, and then it was done in chickens and other animals, the arteries will fill up with plaque in the artery that you're infusing it with. And if you infuse arteries with leptin, they will calcify. There's a big connection between the endothelium, which is the cells that line the arteries, and bone. And that leptin very powerfully influences bone growth. And if you have too much leptin, which is influenced by what you eat, just the high leptin circulating, some people think it might actually get caught in plaque, to increase its concentration, it will stimulate cells in the lining of the arteries to make bone. That's how you get calcification. And the treatment for it is to keep your leptin levels low. It's really simple. You are guaranteed, I will guarantee you, and you don't see too many guarantees in medicine, that if you keep your leptin levels low, you will have a far more beneficial effect on arterial calcification and even vascular physiology on your risk of cardiovascular death and on your risk of total mortality and your rate of aging than if you were to take 
statin drugs. And in fact, almost opposite. In other words, just taking statin drugs will increase your risk of mortality, it'll lower your lifespan. Keeping leptin low will increase your lifespan and lower your risk of mortality and lower your arterial calcification. And over time, that arterial calcification can burn off and can reverse. But almost more immediately, you will dilate your arteries to increase blood flow, reduce risk of unwanted clotting of your blood clots so that you reduce risk of heart attack almost immediately. Leptin is really powerful, working in concert with insulin to affect virtually every physiologic process from a very, very deep fundamental level and also controlling cholesterol manufacture and the size of cholesterol particles, which is extremely important. I'm sure at this point, your doctor has heard of small dense LDL and LDL particle size. I hope so. 20 years ago when I started talking about it, nobody had ever heard of it. Now it's, it's certainly being talked about, but it's not influenced by statin drugs. And so they typically don't measure it, although it can be easily measured now too. It's only the size of your particle that's important because if it's too small, it can get stuck and oxidize and cause inflammation, which then causes damage. And the size of the LDL particle is influenced very much by levels of insulin and inflammation, which is controlled by leptin. You know, so cholesterol is, is there to save your life. It's not a primary cause of disease. If it's a cause of disease, it's only because it's being given signals to do the wrong thing. It's not being orchestrated properly. And the way to treat it is to treat the signals that orchestrate the way cholesterol is being transported in your body to save your life, not to kill you. That's a great conclusion. We do have to get out of the studio, but I, I'm grateful to you for spending all this time with me and for your work. And I have your book from several years ago on my shelf, and I probably... I think it's time for me to bring it down and read it again and get the diet into shape. Now, thanks again for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me, and thanks for helping me to disseminate this information. I appreciate it. And if you have any questions on the diet or any more questions on the relationship between leptin and your condition of arterial calcification, you know, please let me know. I think I did there are a couple references in the book about leptin and bone, but since that time, there's been a ton of information now that is linking leptin with other hormones such as serotonin and bone formation and arterial calcification and there's a huge huge connection and interest in the connection between leptin and bone and arterial calcification there's a kind of a crosstalk between all three we know for instance even now bone influences glucose metabolism <laughs> through an, another enzyme a hormone called osteocalcin so there's a huge connection between metabolism glucose and the hormones of metabolism, such as insulin and leptins. We'll have to do another interview sometime soon. Perfect. Okay. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. Dr. Ron Rosedale is the author of The Rosedale Diet. For a transcript or for more interviews like this, check out meandmydiabetes.com.